Welcome to episode 24 of Oscar Sunday. I'm Austin Johnson. I'm Connor Izagari. And this is a Sunday special on Akira Kurosawa's 1950s run centered around the film that started the decade for the Japanese director, Rashomon. Connor, where are you in your walk with Akira Kurosawa? I've seen, counting the work we did for this, I have now seen four of his films. Okay. Uh, the three we watched plus Throne of Blood that I saw a few years ago. And uh, he is a very unique, very distinct filmmaker. You can immediately tell a Kurosawa movie. Uh, oh, yeah. The man was ahead of his time with how he used his camera. And his influence is all over modern American, European, Asian filmmaking. Like This guy went across the entire world in his influence. It really is amazing. Yeah. It tr- truly, truly, it's... It is kind of a shame. He's one of those artists that wasn't totally appreciated in his own country at the time. Yeah. But, it, but in the Western cultures, holy hell, you know, it kind of took everybody by storm. And it starts with Rashomon, right? It starts in 1950, this film that, whoa, everybody is talking about it. Uh, this guy, Toshiro Mifune, is in it. Whoa, this incredible actor. And it starts this tandem, you know, with these two guys, which really started in the 40s with, you know, Drunken Angel and Snow Trail, uh, Toshiro quickly finds a great chemistry with Akira and they start working together and, and make 16 movies together. Holy hell. These guys are incredible. And I, I get it. I get it. Rushamon is awesome. It's an incredible movie. It was my first time seeing it. Your, your first time. And I found it to be in, extremely engaging, pretty creepy at times. And I, there's so many movies now that I've watched, you know, in the past that I've come out the past 40, 50 years that I see, from Rashomon, you know, the, the plot devices of, oh, we're going to use different characters to tell the same story, right? But it's all different and kind of like a vantage point of all these different characters. How incredible, right? For this to come out in 1950 out of Japan from this really bizarre director, Akira Kurosawa, who had a really tough life, you know, mentally. Um, like I said, he wasn't too popular in Japan. And that, that just blows me away, you know, that they didn't realize what they had <laughs> until it was kind of gone, you know, yeah. and that's frustrating. But uh, uh, for, for me, yes, I've now seen these three that we watched uh, this 1950s run, Rashomon, uh, Seven Samurai and the Hidden Fortress. Uh, but I had also seen uh, Sinshiro Shigata part one, uh, Drunken Angel, Snow Trail, uh, and also Throne of Blood, which is just spectacular, right? Uh, a great way. We both, that was our first uh, Kurosawa for both of us. So it's a great way to introduce people to him now for Rashomon is this is this the movie you would introduce Kurosawa to your friends maybe or is there a different one it there's a different one um so I love a good adventure I love a good story driven mm-hmm. character driven movie and for me the favorite of the bunch was the hidden fortress let's talk let's talk hidden fortress okay so this is a film that was very much used as a blueprint for the main plot of Star Wars yes uh, Influence like the look of it influenced the empire a lot. The idea of you know telling a epic story from the perspective of two bumbling fools. In this case, it's these two thieves in Star Wars. It was C three PO and R two D two, and it's cool to see that formula. Like this, it's cool to see where it came from. And hell yeah, it's such a cool, engaging story, and it's really funny at times. And I love that in America at this time you had a strictly enforced code di- dictating how films could be made we've talked about the Hayes code on this show before yes 
where in Japan, at the same time, you have a movie where another character is literally calling someone else a shitworm. <laughs> I mean, I love it. Like, they were experimenting. They were trying new things. They were making film without restrictions. And that's why, you know, modern times, I think foreign film is so ahead of us in the way they tell a story because that we are like 40, 50 years set back because of that goddamn code. <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. So when you are, when you do get older and you finally watch these, these foreign films and whether it be, you know, Jean-Luc Godard or Kira Kurosawa or, you know, whatever it is, whatever is, you know, your bag is for us, it's Kira Kurosawa right now. And this guy, it's, it's no joke how much he influenced the stuff we love and grew up watching. Yeah. And that, that is what it's all about. It is so rewarding to see the source, to see the source of something, to see the source of so much great art. And ah, man, Hidden Fortress is hilarious. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, um, another guy who worked with, worked with uh, Kira a lot, Takashi, uh, Takashi Shimura, is that how he say his name? I believe uh, he, he worked with him countless times as well. And man, this guy's in all the films we watched as well. Uh, just like Toshiro just incredible stuff really funny really good timing for it being the 50s it moves so well because the 50s in america is very different from the 50s exactly what we are trained to see is so much different and that's why something like on the waterfront is so special in america because it is different and it it does kind of go there but then you're watching this stuff in japan it just comes out every year (laughs) yeah it's great i mean if you look at the trajectory of america and japan after world war ii I mean, we just yes. won a war. We just showed the world that we were, you know, we dominated. We were celebrating. Japan was just nuked and they lost their national pride. So their like redevelopment as a nation, I think, was very dependent on, you know, cinema that is very grandiose and very, you know, prideful and very celebrating the age of the samurai, arguably the greatest generation of Japan's culture. And I notice a lot of these films are very much, you know, we're still the best and, you know, everything's, you know, we rock. And I love that mentality. <laughs> it's maybe not for the right reasons, but it's cool to see that kind of comparison where, you know, we've watched some 50s movies on this podcast before, mostly American 50s movies. Yes. And now we get to compare and contrast in such a very different animal. Oh, way different beast, way different beast. And Hidden Fortress, I kind of knew that would be your favorite, you know, uh, it influences the start of something that's so special for, for Star Wars fans. Uh, you know, it, you look at the, the late 70s film and it really does. It, it has a lot of shit that's directly from the film, you know, and I have zero problems with that. I think it's awesome. I think it's really cool when you can see art rubbing off on another director. I love that. I think it's really cool. Um, and Hidden Fortress is, is a special one. I highly suggested to people. That was 1958, correct? Yes. Yes, so let, let's, go, let's go a few years back to 1954 for the three-and-a-half-hour epic Seven Samurai. Now, this film, you know, if you go on IMDb or Letterboxd or Rotten Tomatoes or whatever it may be, it's ranked very, very, very high, very high. And maybe, you know, we're showing a lack of street cred here, maybe, I disagree because I think we've done our homework here, but neither of us found it to be the masterpiece that people say it is. Yeah. That's uh, I always feel like an idiot when that happens. I don't, I yeah. should, cause it's, you know, all art is subjective. You know, there's 
100 per, I, the 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, I don't think any movie is worthy of 100%. I think that it's is tough. for a movie to be 100% universally loved by everybody is is a miracle. And uh, Seven Samurai has 100%. And uh, no, I don't see it. I think this is a movie that's very bloated. I think that it doesn't devote enough time to character development. I think that the stakes don't seem nearly as high as they should. I mean, they kind of take out those bandits really easily. Like, did they really need these samurai? This does not seem like a seven-man job. Like, the bandits are so ineffectual. And you don't feel... I didn't feel anything when the, like when four of them died. Like, I just... I don't know. I had the same issue with, oddly enough, the American remake, The Magnificent Seven. Yes. It's just, I don't think this story works. <laughs> and I don't, that's just my opinion, but you know, whatever. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm with you to an extent there. Uh, I think Seven Samurai is very, very good and has some very, very stylish directing. Very stylish. The cinematography oh, yeah. is, is stellar. I'm not going to botch that guy's name. Um, he, he also works with Kurosawa quite a bit. Uh, fuck it. Kazoo, Kazoo Miwagawa. That sounds about right. Um, he, he was the cinematographer on a lot of these films in the 50s with Akira. And geez, these guys, they're just so far ahead of the game when it comes to transitioning and all the editing stuff and angles, all the, all the fundamentals of, of filmmaking, you know, and directing and, and camera work. It, it's all there with these guys in the 1950s, you know? And we've talked a lot about how in the 30s, 40s, 50s, there's a lot of American films where they're just pointing a camera at actors and go. And, you know, that's, that gets kind of, you know, gets kind of boring and gets redundant, but here with Kurosawa, it's just not the case in seven samurai. If you want that kind of atmosphere and that style, I highly, highly suggest it, but, but I'm with you. The, the story itself for me is overrated. It's, I love a long, long, slow burn. You know, my favorite movie of all time is Magnolia because they build and build and build and build and make you feel a certain way about each character. Whereas, you know, Seven Samurai, it feels as though, like you said, it's the, the character development is lackluster. And I, I, didn't, I didn't feel a connection to really any individual. Now, I love watching Toshiro perform. Love him. I, absolutely. I, I've, I've kind of fallen in love with his, his style of acting, you know, the past, the past year or so as I've introduced myself to Kurosawa and, and him as an actor. Good Lord. But, I, but the characters themselves, I, I just don't feel that connection. And then the, that last scene, when you do see the swords, you know, in, uh, in, you know, in the, on the hill and, you know, these guys are buried and I just didn't, yeah, I didn't really feel the three and a half hours like, oh, that was epic. I felt more like, all right, cool. Like, that was good, but I'm, I'm ready to see more Kurosawa. I kind of was ready to move on, which is what I did. I watched Rashomon right after. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that um, when a director's, when a, when a film is declared a director's masterpiece, it's tough to be on the opposite side of that conversation without looking like you don't know what you're talking about. For sure. Yeah, we, oh, there's, there's people who would think we sound like fucking buffoons. That's fine. And we, neither of us are saying it's a bad film. But this would be this would be like if neither of us had seen anything directed by Tarantino and you just said, all right, this one's the masterpiece, you know, and you and then you go into it and you're kind of let down. It shit can happen sometimes. 
Yeah. I mean, it's not like we're saying, you know, nobody speaks English, so this is a piece of shit. We're not. Oh, <laughs> it's no, not who we are. No. <laughs> no. And I still I still I think you gave the film on your review, you gave it a seven and I would give it an eight. Yeah. Uh, we're not calling it. Yeah. Bad by any means. But we both like Hidden Fortress a little bit more. And then Rushamon, I definitely like more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah, so there's just there's and there's more work for us to do in the 50s and back to the 40s, you know, and then you go into the 60s and we'll surely do a, uh, the last stages of Kurosawa, right, on this show, which is where, where I kind of want to steer the conversation a little bit more before we talk about Rushamon. Uh, I want to talk about Kurosawa some and this guy, his importance on cinema but also the Oscars, which is what we love to talk about here on this show, Oscar Sunday. Uh, five of his films uh, over the course of the, of the Oscar, of Oscar history have been the Japanese submission. That's the most for any Japanese director um, by, by kind of a mile. Cause the only other, there's only one other guy who has two and then everybody else has one. <laughs> so uh, Kurosawa is looked at as, you know, in the Western culture, the greatest, you know, Japanese director of all time. And one of the greatest, you know, directors out of the Eastern part of the world. Uh, you know, in 1971, he, uh, Kurosawa was going through some, some shit, you know, uh, mentally. Right. And, you know, if you, if you, uh, have a weak stomach, you know, I suggest you maybe don't listen to this part, but, uh, Akira Kurosawa tried to take his own life at one point, you know, this guy, uh, you know, slid his wrist and throat up to 30 times it's it is uh documented um and he survived and kept going you know and kept making films uh he goes on if you're a fan of his you know he goes on and makes ran which some people see as his masterpiece uh in the 80s and you know continues to work uh and then in 1995 he experiences a slip and fall while he's on set for a film and breaks his spine which puts him in a wheelchair for the last three years of his life. Um, he died of a stroke in 1998 uh, at the age of 88. And, you know, very dark, very dark life. And I think it would be silly and stupid for me to not bring up uh, the man's life, the man's personal demons, because that clearly, clearly has an influence on his work, obviously. And, you know, it gives me chills when you know these things about an artist, you know how tough of a life they had. They clearly had some things going on there in their head that they were battling. He wasn't really, you know, well recepted in his own country. It's, it's really tough, right? When you know these things and you, you start watching their, their art, their craft, and you can see the demons on the screen. Very much so. His films are dark. His films deal with personal tragedy and national tragedy and the ones that i've seen anyway have all been very grandiose like huge scale films except for rashomon which is kind of takes that mentality and puts it into only into a few people which was very smart and yeah. uh yeah i totally i can see that he's a tortured artist but damn that is 30 times good yeah the, you know i there's various articles and obviously lots of books written about the man. Uh, and I, I just kind of took a dive into the internet, you know, and read some stuff about that incident, uh, what all happened in 1971. And he's just dealing with a lot of stuff. You know, he was, he was 61 uh, at the time when it happened and just 
you know, you, you think an artist has it all or whatever, and you just, they, you know, they're people. And that's, we, we like to bring the people part of, of these artists up on these shows, you know, Filmgasm, Oscar Sunday. Uh, that's what we're going to do. You know, we like to humanize these guys, but also praise the art, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that goes for anybody, you know, that goes for someone who's passed away or someone who we feel like has just been a dickhead, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like Roman Plansky. Uh, you know what, no matter what it is, you, you kind of have to, you know, talk about it all, but, um, you know, m- mostly we want to praise Kurosawa's work here. So R- Rashomon, it actually at the Oscars, it uh, skipped a year because foreign films do this all the time. Uh, shit happens. They don't come out in the U S until a year later. So in 1952, it got an honorary award at the 24th Academy Awards, 24th Academy Awards. Let's take a look. And what we got here, that would be the year that An American in Paris won Best Picture. Uh, a Streetcar Named Desire had 12 nominations leading all films. And then you have uh, Rashomon with an honorary award there. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's when you start seeing the Academy paying attention to foreign films. Oh, huh, what's going on over there? You know, and then time goes by, time goes by. And then in the 60s, they make a proper category, Best Foreign Film, you know, and that shit keeps coming, keeps coming. And then years later, you know, oh shit, all of a sudden these films are up, you know, Z, which is a film we did, is up for best picture too. What the hell is going on? And it creeps in, creeps in. And then you fast forward to 2019 and you have Parasite winning best picture. And you got to think films like Rashomon and like the 50s stuff that Kurosawa is doing and the, the 60s stuff that Federico Fellini is doing. You got it. You got to respect those guys because they paved a way and opened the door for foreign film to really come into the United States and take over. Yeah, that, true. And also at the time in the country, I mean, we were paranoid as fuck. I mean, this oh. was, I mean, for, the, for a, a Japanese film to be honored in any way, just five years after the end of World War II is yeah. kind of incredible. It just go, you know, it shows kind of the progressive side of the arts, and uh, I, don't, I wish that mentality had been, you know, pushed a little bit more nationally in our country. We might not have done so much heinous shit in the 20th century. Yeah, no kidding, right? God, Jesus, man! I think about you. You really put yourself, uh, you know, say if we were in our 20s and you put yourself in the 50s. That, this would just blow our minds, and we'd be. I have to see this movie. <laughs> yeah, what the hell is Rashomon? I gotta know. I gotta know. We would be those nerdy kids who are uh, lining up, like we gotta know what's happening. <laughs> but there'd also be people who are, you know, still very angry and very sour, and consider J- Japan the enemy still. And oh my god, they 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 would think there's people who are frustrated that a Korean film was j- just one. Yeah. Still, still, Donald Trump didn't even like it. That fuck. By the way, uh, congratulations to President-elect Biden. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, that's right. The the timing of the show, you know, it's it's been a while, but good lord, it was a long it was a long uh, election there. You know, it was a long election week. So yes, congrats <laughs> to to Joe and uh, Kamala Harris, and uh, let's keep talking Rushamon. <laughs> it's about as political as we're gonna get. <laughs> um, I think it's interesting that. I mean, this doesn't happen very often, but it, it, like you said, it does seem to happen a lot with the foreign films that they'll be con, uh, contenders in two separate uh, ceremonies. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such an odd thing to happen. I, I don't know. I feel like it, like once you're up for one Academy, like once you're up for one Oscars, you don't get to be, you don't get to play with another Oscars. I don't care what country you're from. That should yeah, not be a thing. It, yeah. Even in, <laughs> in you, you know, me, man, some like my, one of my favorite movies of the century would be, uh, Alfonso Cuaron's Y Tu Mama Tembien. And it, it didn't compete at the Oscars till like three years after its initial release in Mexico. I fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make sense. So that first Oscars, uh, any films on here that you've like, that you've seen that you'd like to, uh, talk about? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I would love to talk about the 24th Academy Awards a little bit here because there, there's some interesting facts. First off, you know, our boy Humphrey Bogart wins best actor for the African queen. Yes. Which is in fact, the last man born in the 19th century to win the award. Huh? That's Isn't amazing. that wild? So after, from, from there on out, you know, it's, it's guys who were born in the 20th century. And of course, that's how it's going to be for a while uh, until we have someone who's the last 20th century man, which would be crazy. Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see it. <laughs> well, that, that, that'll be like Timothy Chalmay or something. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah Luke, Lucas Hedges or yeah, someone like that. I don't know. Who knows who's in the, in the mix. You know who's really good is that kid... That was in Ford vs. Ferrari. Yeah, I know who you're talking about, but I don't remember his name. That kid, that kid was really good. He's in something else uh, last year, I feel like. Um, let's, 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 find, let's find this kid's name. I feel like this guy's got a future, and I want, I want to document it right here. Noah Jupe. <laughs> yes, there we go. Noah Honey Jupe. Boy. Oh, he's in Honey Boy. That's right. He basically plays Louis Stevens. Yeah, uh, little Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. He'll, go, yeah. he'll, he'll be going places. Yeah, I feel like that. I feel like that kid's got some something there. Um, but yeah, hum, hum, Bogey. Have you seen um, African Queen? I have. It's a great movie. Yeah, dude. <laughs> Bogey. Bogey deserves, from what I've seen, like four Oscars just from the shit I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps impressing me with every film of his I watch. He really was like maybe yeah. the best actor of that generation. Like him and him from, and Brando. From what I've a, seen. Oh, that's tough. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's that's kind of like what would you compare that to to today? If there are two two guys who are kind of like the Titans, uh, can we count Daniel Day Lewis? I mean, he did retire. Yeah, maybe he's passed already. Maybe Daniel Day is. Maybe Daniel Day is more someone of the past generation. I don't know. Maybe I think Leo is one of those guys. Um, Leo and Pitt. <laughs> Maybe, maybe. I, um, I think those might. I think those might be our two like most talented Hollywood guys in their forties. Or is Brad Pitt in his fifties now? Yeah, yeah. Brad's in his yeah. 50s. yeah. And Leo's Leo like, creeping up there. <laughs> he just turned forty six like three days ago. Leo. God damn. Um, yeah. I think that in a few years, I think Daniel Kaluuya is going to be one of those guys. The more I see of him, like I can't fucking believe his range. So. I, I think he's going to be a contender, like a big time contender. I think we're going to look back on his career fondly. Oh my God. I agree. I think, I think that's a great call. And if I had to pick someone who is also really young, Lakeith Stanfield, holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) Same, same thing. You know, these guys, the range, the fucking range. Uh, Who, uh, I really like, uh, you know, Paul Dano is a guy who's in his thirties who, 
has proven that he can direct now. Yeah. I think he's someone, I think he's someone who we could see like really do something amazing throughout his forties and fifties. Maybe, I don't know. Um, I, I just, I, I love the, the idea of, you know, bogey and Brando, uh, you know, Redford and Hoffman, you know, um, Hanks and Washington. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the best shit, right? The, when you get two awesome actors and hell, I'll throw Toshiro and Takashi in there. <laughs> Very nice. It is cool. Especially I like knowing that, you know, paying attention to all this shit as it happens is really neat because we're witnessing the rise of the next generation of these people, of these guys. You know, Timothy Chalamet, uh, Lucas Hedges, Robert Pattinson, Paul Dano. These are guys who are going to be talked about a hundred years from now as some of the greatest of this century. Okay, that's a, that's an incredible that's an incredible point and topic because <laughs> if you really think about it, you know, go back to when we were ten and Brokeback Mountain comes out, you know, and it's this monumental performance for both dudes and for Michelle and Anne Hathaway. Mo- yeah, amazing stuff. And when it's happening, you know, it happens. They're all in their 20s and it happens. And then, but then 15 years go by and all, all this shit happens. One of them, one of them passed away. Jake Jonah has done all these amazing things. And Hathaway has done all these amazing things. Michelle Williams, you know, Oscar nominations for some of these people. And if you, if you blink, that shit's going to go by, man. You're not going to witness it, you know? And yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you, a guy like, Timothy Chalmay and Lucas Hedges. I want to see everything they're doing right now. Everything. Because when they do break through and win those Oscars, I will already have been, yeah, mm-hmm, I was there. I saw what they were doing. <laughs> you know, I, I knew it was, I knew it was coming. Daniel Kaluuya is a surefire. To me, he's a surefire guy who's going to get an Oscar win at some point. I love, love, love what he's doing in Widows. Holy hell. He scared the shit out of me. In Widows. Oh my God. I'm glad I can finally talk about that movie. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I love how Rushamon in the uh, 24th Academy Awards just opened up uh, uh, talking about actors here. <laughs> Our roles. This is an unscripted sh- show. We just think of, you know, we, we've tried it today on topic, but shit just comes up. <laughs> there's, there's nothing we can do. I promise we'll get to Rushamon uh, here shortly, but I, I, love, I love the actor discussion. Yeah. And do you find. Toshiro to be a guy that you're wanting to go back to. Absolutely. I mean, he is the standout of everything I've seen of Kurosawa's. He plays, he's a very distinct character actor. All of his characters are different. I love that. That was not, that did not happen a lot in the, you know, early uh, centuries of film. It was very much just, you know, an actor gets the script, an actor reads the script, an actor goes home. There were very few character actors, but Toshiro Mifune is a guy who really gets overlooked. And he's a fucking powerhouse. That guy could be scary. He could be hilarious. He could be dramatic. Like he's kind of all of that in Rashomon. <laughs> um, yeah, I fucking love that guy. Me too. I, he he screams in a way that I've never never seen done in front of the camera. He does things. He's not. A, he, it doesn't even feel like he's acting. I don't even know. Don't even know what he's doing. There's some people that if they did what he's doing, I would think that they're stupid and look like morons, but he pulls it off. He really does. And that's kind of, that's kind of what you always look for, right? In in acting, you want a guy who only can do that. And it's him. It's him. He's the only man who can do these jobs that he's doing, these performances he's doing in drunken angel. You got to see that he, 
he's fucking scary in that. Just just his scowl. And <laughs> I, I guess he's that way in all of them. Jesus Christ. I I I, I was enticed by Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro by his by Toshiro's face on Criterion. And I, I see uh, the Toshiro Turns 100 collection and it has a bunch of movies that he's been in. And I, I saw his face, his screaming face holding a sword and I'm in, you know, I got to know who's that guy. And then as I, as I, you know, learn and read, oh, people love this guy. <laughs> this is, this is one of those actors that people just latch onto and he has a whole fan club and I'm a part of it now. Oh man. I can't wait to get more of his performances under my belt. Damn straight. I was looking into his trivia just to learn some stuff about this guy. Yeah, me too. And I'm DB. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't believe that he was up for Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. But uh, can you imagine? Oh. Well, he lost out to Pat Morita because Mifune's audition was fucking terrifying. He, he was well, playing well, it yeah. way too scary. <laughs> he's he's too. He's too big, too tall, too strong, too almost too masculine for so many roles. This guy, it doesn't matter. Even if he was, even if he was short, you know. And if I read that he's actually not that tall, I don't believe it because on the screen he looks massive. The way he uses his body, the way he uses his legs and his hair, just whether it's you know bunned up or dangling down, or he's got his big beard, he is just a frightening awesome dude to watch he was only five foot eight and a half i'm taller than tashira mifune but i don't feel taller than tashira i i yeah it like does it does not matter he makes me believe it yeah god damn amazing amazing guy that like his only accolade like his biggest accolade he was up for a bafta in 1956 and then he was up for an emmy in 1981 but that's kind of all his like his biggest western um nominations he never was considered for the oscars or golden gloves or anything but he is beloved in japan oh yeah he's he's the man he's the man now now he's you know he's moved his way west obviously over the years and more and more people like him and there's young people like us out there who just dig this kind of shit and that's who we're trying to reach out to with this episode you know is hey we're watching toshiro as well we're not just watching American Oscar nominated movies were, you know, we're, we're watching this, this deep shit too. And this will not be the, the last first or last um, foreign, uh, you know, related episode that we do. There's plenty of individuals that we want to cover, but we felt that Akira was going to be the best to do. Cause he kind of marries uh, film gasm and, you know, Oscar Sunday, right. Cause his style is so unique and so badass that a lot of his films could fit on film gasm. Uh, on that podcast and they could certainly fit on here yeah prior to uh sean connery's death we had we actually had had the hidden fortress as its own filmgasm episode this week but yes we we swapped it out to honor a great actor but uh yeah i can definitely see you know we'll be putting some kurosawa films on the list for uh 2021 i'm sure fucking a man well yeah why not i mean this guy uses all kinds of different characters uses you know, everyday kind of people use a samurai bandits, you know, woodcutters, <laughs> you know, he'll do anything. And I, I love that. And that's, that's a great way to just really, really dig into Rashomon here. Uh, your first thoughts on the film. Well, first let's talk about the other Academy Awards it was up for. 
the uh oh yeah of course of course well uh, let's see i think it was just nominated for one right art direction for black and white yes yeah yeah let let me let me hear yeah you're right let me hear what that was up against um we've got viva zapata rashomon my cousin rachel carrie not stephen king but a 1950s carrie and the winner the bad and the beautiful uh i have not seen these other films but the set the set design in rashomon's pretty pretty nice well done Oh yeah, spectacular. And we'll surely watch those other films sometime in the future because that's what we're trying to do here is just watch all kinds of Oscar nominated movies. Yeah. And I love that I love that Rushman breaks in not only getting the honorary award but also getting art direction nomination. That's really cool. Yeah, it's rare for, you know, foreign film in that time to really get anything in this film. You know, it got something Seven Samurai was up for I think costume design and art yeah. direction. Uh, yeah, Gate of Gate of Hell in 1953 was up for costume design. Yeah, there's there's random ones in the 50s. Yeah, it's nice to see you know just a little bit a little glimpse of the future, a little glimpse of progression, and you know it's those little Oscar nominations that paved the way for a Parasite win in 2019. Exactly, exactly. Love it. Yeah, it's awesome. The, you know the Oscars are a global thing, and I love that we're you know giving some time to the foreign side of the, the awards. Oh, yeah, it's very, very, very important. Rushman is arguably, you know, you could call it the most important or you could call it, you know, the first or whatever it is for the Oscars because it just broke in. It broke in and re- just demands an honorary award. And I, I just, I'm really excited because obviously if you've listened to the show before, we're going to give some awards out for this film. But I, I do, I do want to ask you before, just the, 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 the plot devices of this film. I I found it to be just rewarding, rewarding as hell to go down this road and watch this film. Uh, I just want to get your general thoughts on it before we dig into these awards. It is certainly rewarding. It's uh, it's very cool to see this in action, to see this kind of, you know, this trope, which we've seen a hundred times in various TV shows and movies, but to see it done first is really yes. remarkable. And every story stands out. I love that everyone's fucking lying. Uh, and in the end, you know, is that really what happened? We don't know. Maybe, you know, that Woodcutter could be, you know, shooting his mouth off again. But if that is what happened, it's fucking tragic and really sick. <laughs> but um, I was actually, I was very surprised at how grown up this movie was. It came out in 1950. This thing has, you know, it deals with murder, rape, uh, you know, aggressive people doing just dark shit for the fuck of it it's really like overbearing at times it's kind of nuts and uh that goes right back to kurosawa and his you know his problems he you know he had this mental you know these this mental illness and that he i think manifested in his film with very with a very dark lens and rashomon definitely has that dark side of things yeah oh yeah i mean he he also is not just a wonderful director, but he also wrote a lot of the screenplays for these films. And he adapted this screenplay from Rushman from in a grove. And apparently, yeah, he just takes it to the next level. You know, he just wants to get the weird shit in his mind on the screen. And maybe some people will relate to it or dig it. And I do. <laughs> I certainly do. I certainly liked Rushman quite a bit. My, my, favorite so far is still drunken angel of all the films i've seen of his but but rushman is probably second 
Right on. I'm, you know, I'm only four in the bag, so I'm still on Hidden Fortress. But uh, Hidden Fortress, I'm certainly it's not great. done. Oh no, we got we got so much to do. We got more decades to cover. I can't wait. But uh, but right now, let's uh, let's really really dig into this one and, and talk about what we really love about it. So I'll let you start with your Tarantino Award for your best quote or line. Okay. Uh, so this comes from. Uh, about middle of the movie, they're talking about whether or not they think, uh, I think the, the wife, whether or not she's lying about her testimony. And okay. somebody, I think somebody says to the woodcutter, it's human to lie. Most of the time, we can't even be honest with ourselves. And I thought that was brilliant, especially considering later on, like the woodcutters reveal that he was lying the first time. Like, or is he lying now? It, re- it kind of leaves you like... Kurosawa kind of leaves you to make your own decision about that. Oh, for sure. He definitely, the end of the movie, you think, oh, okay. You're like, wait a minute, that could have been a lie. But the movie has to end at some point. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought that was a great uh, line. <laughs> it, it, it is. That is a genius line. I wrote that one down, but then I crossed it out and <laughs> picked a different one. But mine's actually said by the same guy. It's the the commoner is is kind of his his name. He doesn't have an actual name. It's just his title in the movie. Um, uh, very similar style. He's just arguing with the woodcutter. And we all want to forget something. So we tell stories. It's easier that way. Oof. Damn, man. 1950. <laughs> so ahead yeah, we, of we both, we both chose meta shit. That's just kind of like, <laughs> it, it kind of describes the whole film. We both chose quotes that really dig into what, what the movie's trying to do and the, the kind of storytelling it is and fucking with you so that at the end of the movie, you still have no idea what to, <laughs> what to take from it. And I, I love that. I love when a character tells you what's going on and you kind of still have to think about it. This is something that the Cohen brothers do so, so, so well. They know that they're distracting you. They know they're telling you stories, but they're so damn good at it. Very true. Again, you know, more filmmakers influenced by this guy <laughs> oh 100 percent. and bella buster scruggs literally at the beginning you know it's like they're telling you at the beginning of the movie this is going to be a bunch of stories and we're just here to distract you come on down you know and it's like and you just watch for an hour and a half you know and that's what we do it's what we do we love filmmaking we love unpacking it but at the end of the day the director is is playing god right is like i'm in control of this hour and a half and i'm gonna take you wherever i want and we're just fucking willing to do that. And I, I think that's amazing when you give that up. And Kurosawa has such a control and an understanding of his audience. That's, I love that about him. Before we continue, I do remember a declaration I made last week where I talked about Clint Eastwood. And I do have yeah. to clarify that before we get ahead of ourselves. Hell yeah. Um, so the 1961 film Yojimbo, which is uh, yes. one we didn't cover today, but we will certainly be doing on Filmgasm at some point. Oh, it's- yeah. A film that may be the most influential in pop culture of Kurosawa's entire career. It's the film that was remade in Italy as a, a fistful of dollars. And Kurosawa actually sued Leone, won, and got name recognition on the film. But Clint Eastwood, that was his breakout role, the man with no name in a fistful of dollars. And that role catapulted Clint Eastwood to American and worldwide st- superstardom. And also Yojimbo the template for Miller's crossing as well. Like it's, it's a film that has just kind of been retold in so many different ways that you, you like to, the amount of films that are based on that movie is kind of staggering. So 
that's all I got for that. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to watch that. Right, and that of course comes in the '60s. So that's we're trying to stick with the '50s. We had to cap it somewhere. Uh, I know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, honestly, the way I feel about Kurosawa, how amped I am about just you know finding a new director and you know you you go on this walk with them. I want to. I want to do ten movies in a row on these podcasts, <laughs> but but we got we got to you know have very variety and and that's just that's not what this podcast is all about. We like to change it up and. At some point, we got to cap it. And, you know, Seven Samurai is three and a half hours. So we weren't just watching movies. We were watching, like, kind of long movies. Hidden Fortress is, like, almost two and a half. So, yeah, it's, you know, we're, there's some meaty stuff here. Yeah. And, you know, like like we said, this is not going to be our last time in Kurosawa's career. We, we were so, going to do a few episodes on this guy in our, in our, you know, in the long run. Yeah. You will hear his name plenty uh, with uh, Filmgasm Productions. That's for sure. Uh, well, let's move on to the Ennio Morricone. Um, I'll start this one. It's uh, our best music moment. I have something pretty specific, and I'll see if you can remember exactly, because it's hard for me to totally... It, it's at the 31-minute mark. I wrote that down. And the camera pans up to the trees <laughs> and the sky. I, it's, I, it's very hard to say exactly what's going on. It's in the, it's in the second... No, 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 sorry. It's while Toshira is, is, is speaking about his story. It's while Toshira's character is telling his part of the story. And the music turns to this almost, I almost felt like it was out of the film Annihilation. Like, wah, wah. and I've, I, I've never seen that in a 50s film or anything where the instruments feel like they're almost ringing, where it was kind of like, oh, I see, I see some Midsommar in here. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I don't know if you remember that scene. Uh, it's very a disillusioned scene, and uh, the film has many of those where you're just kind of like, well, what exactly is happening? Almost dreamlike, right? Because it's yeah. imagination, storytelling, imagination. And there's just a, right there, at the, it's right at the 30, 31 minute mark. There's just a part of the score that just kind of made my heart jump. And I can't quite describe it, but if you watch it, uh, yeah, be, be on the lookout for that part. It's, it's a really cool bit of music. That is really specific, and I wish I I wish I could think of what you're talking about, but I do not. Well, and I, I tried to find the name of the piece, and when you look at the score, it's just part one, part two, part three, part four. And so it's like, oh, my God, you have to listen to <laughs> – you would have to listen to the whole thing to really – it really is a moment of music. And that's what this the Inyo is about. It's about a moment of music or a soundtrack bit, uh, a needle drop, if you will. Uh, but that, that was the moment right there where it really kind of – got the hairs on my neck to stand it was just this kind of ringing and i i couldn't believe it you know at that at that moment and this movie is filled with these you know just bizarre retellings you know of these these dark dark things happening and so the music is fitting at times yeah for sure i went with something a little bit more upbeat um for me it's the the beginning of the woodcutter's tale his first tale where he's walking through the woods and just kind of Ooh. talking about what you know what he saw that day and this it's very much it feels like a disney drop like a 30s disney drop of just you know walking through the wood but it slowly turns ominous the closer he gets to the body and then when he finds the body it's a completely different score and i thought that was very smart it was like snow white walking through the woods and then the woods get evil it was it reminded me of that oh for sure that's it that's a great call i know exactly what you're talking about <laughs> Because I, 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 this movie, 
was one of those where I locked in and really didn't move for the entire hour and a half. It kind of just kept me there. It's the pace of it's nice. It's very creepy and weird. It's up my alley, but it's also an hour and a half and you're just kind of locked in and that's it. And then it's over and you're just kind of left to figure it out. Uh, (laughs) I I love that bit. And uh, the, the Enyo could go to a lot of moments here. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of little, little pieces of the score that are, they're just real nice. Uh, and it really describes what's happening and that's what it's all about. You want it to become the char- a character of its own. Uh, great call, man. What's your, um, what, what's your PSH? <laughs> well, um, it's not Mifune. Who is it? I figured. It's Machiko Kayo who plays okay. the wife. Yes. Masako. And it's because of the final bit with the woodcutter's true tale. And she becomes this manipulative evil woman and i didn't expect that at all it's like it was a complete 180 on the character and i thought that was brilliant and it it locked me in and i was like this lady is crazy (laughs) and yeah yeah she's she's so good (laughs) super creepy super creepy performance it kind of reminded me of the i can't remember the woman's name the performance in kira neko uh from 1968 just just this kind of pale look that ah, just gets you, man. And it gets you, it puts you into an atmosphere. That's a great call. My, mine goes to Toshiro. I thought he just, yeah, it's, I'm kind of, I'm just a sucker for him. When he's sitting down and he's tied up, I, if, if an actor can do that and I'm just, I'm just staring at him, I'm like, oh my God, this guy's crazy. You know, I'm just watching everything he's doing and he's just sitting there. Uh, I got to give it to him. <laughs> Yeah, I figured one of us was going to do it, and I, I figured you would. So I wanted to spotlight oh, uh, somebody else who I thought was just as good, if not better, at times. I, I I agree with that. I am biased towards Toshiro, so yes, I think she was fantastic. Right on, <laughs> awesome. Let's uh, let's talk about the Deacons here. This would be the best scene, best moment of the movie. Uh, what is it for you, Connor? For me, it is the woodcutter's true tale. That bit. Ah was so eye-opening and really kind of paints all of these characters as horrible, horrible people. I mean, you know, Mifune's character for raping this woman and then trying to proclaim his love for her. Uh, The husband for saying, you're soiled, I don't want you anymore, to his wife. And the wife for pitting these two men against each other for her affections. Like, all three of them are just complete pieces of shit in this scene. And it really repaints the whole movie as just one big lie to save face. And I thought it was just, I was, I was glued that whole bit. I was like, this is nuts. And yeah. Yeah. And in the end, I love that he does. Kurosawa does not tell you that that's the truth. He just says nope. like, it, it's a truth and you can choose to accept that or not. And uh, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant finale to this movie. Yeah. Extremely strong finale. That I, that I find to be the most effective form of, of ending a film is, you know, to, to leave the audience in kind of disarray, but also, oh, I gave you the fact, I gave you, I gave you what you needed to see. It's up to you now, you know, and I really do like that. I, I, I very much appreciate that. My, my Deacons goes to uh, a pretty specific thing that happens, and that would be the moment that uh, the deceased samurai is speaking through the medium. <laughs> now you know you know me connor i'm 
a sucker for when a film just kind of turns itself, you know, on its head. And that, that was it for me right there was the moment that I, you know, the music at one point for me made my heart, you know, kind of skip a beep that this, this made my, when I heard the, that voice, my heart skipped a few beats. And this is, this is what I watch movies for is that those kind of whack-ass moments out of nowhere that still fit that still makes sense that Akira still pulls off in the middle of this story of all these four different stories, you know, you're, you're watching this medium. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) You know, that's, that's, that's wild shit. I love when movies do that. I love when they have a moment of like, it really, it draws a, it draws a fucking line in the sand, dude. <laughs> it really, it really does. And it, it's like, are you here or are you just like, no, I'm not here. And I, I crossed the line right away. Like I'm in, I want this. This is fucking awesome. You know, that it just got that much darker and stranger. Uh, and that was, that was a specific moment when that happened. I was like, that's my deacons. <laughs> that is a very oddball scene and i had i had that pick before the end of the movie uh but the more i thought about that scene the more i was just like this is so weird like why is this here you have like a very serious movie about a rape and murder trial and then suddenly there's a fucking ghost (laughs) but it's so neat and played so well that you can't help but get drawn in yeah you uh, you just go with it you're like whatever Whatever, I believe it. Whatever, we're gonna keep going. <laughs> it's fucking nuts, man. But, uh, yeah, but but the the finale really, it really is just amazing. And when the the priest is let down, and then oh, my hope, you know, my faith and hope is restored, <laughs> and gives the baby to the woodcutter, and he he runs off, and the end, you know, it's just spectacular. Woodcutter at first is like, you know, put that back. It doesn't belong to you. <laughs> Like very much a Frank Reynolds type reaction to finding a baby, dumpster baby, yeah. <laughs> but it was weird that he's just suddenly like, you know what? I got five kids. What's you know? What's one more? Give me the kid. Yeah, and the priest is like, you're right. Yeah. Suddenly, the world is a bit brighter. Okay, he's probably going to leave that baby in a ditch, but okay. Yeah, and that's you know that's not uh, for us to see. You know, Akira ends the movie there, and that's it. Uh, I just, I, I loved it, man. I, I could see it raising up to a nine, but for now it's an eight, but I could see it. I could see it going up. I'm definitely going to rewatch this one. It's an eight for me as well. And um, I heard HBO max is actually working on a uh, series remake of this. Yeah. So I'm not, you know, jazz. They tend to fuck that up every time, but I don't know. Maybe I'll take a look. Yeah, maybe I TV just don't have a terrific amount of time for it. Uh, when you yeah, when you watch, you know, seven hours of Akira Kurosawa movies in one week, it's kind of that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah. Jesus Christ, <laughs> that was like seven hours. Oh my God. The things we well, yeah. do for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's basically, you know, a mini series or whatever, you know. So essentially. We're choosing we're kind of choosing film over TV, and I'm a hundred percent okay with that. Yeah. I've got, you know, there's a hundred there's hundreds of iconic films I haven't seen. And I don't really give a shit about iconic television shows. Like, what am I going to do? Binge watch New Heart? Come on. So, yeah, I think I'm making the right decision. 
Yeah, man. And, you know, we're going to continue to try to watch new stuff for the show, but also praise stuff we love. You know, we got to do fucking, you know, Moneyball. We get to introduce ourselves to Rush him on, and it's, it's, it's an absolute blast. Hell yeah, man. And uh, I guess with that, let's take a look at what happened this week in film. Yes, sir. Been a lot of shit going on this week, so I've got quite a, I've got quite a list. No kidding, man. <laughs> First up, and this was just neat, because I don't know if you ever heard about this story, but it was bonkers. Stephen Frears and Steve Coogan are teaming for a movie called The Lost King, which is about the discovery of King Richard III's bones uh, from a few years ago. Do you, did you hear about that story at all when that happened? Yeah, and I am in. I love Stephen Frears. Come on. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, a few years back, they were doing some redevelopment in a parking lot, and they found the bones of Richard III <laughs> in that parking lot, buried beneath the asphalt. What in the hell? Yeah, so I'm very excited about seeing that movie. That sounds fascinating. Jesus, dude. <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, Steve, Stephen Frears, you know, this guy, beautiful laundrette, the grifters, uh, high fidelity. Uh, Connor, what else do you like? The queen, uh, Philomena. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, God, I, I, that guy's awesome. <laughs> uh, this was sad. Uh, Jeopardy game show host Alex Trebek has died at age 80 from pancreatic cancer. Uh, he'd been diagnosed a while back. It's not really a surprise. It's just sad. And uh, Yeah, yeah. We, we talked a bit about, uh, you know, obviously talked a lot about Connery and a little bit about Trebek on uh, Filmgasm. Yeah. If you want to hear more about Connery, definitely check that out. That was a lot of fun. For sure. And I hear that they're, uh, they might be grooming a longtime Jeopardy champion, Ken Jennings, to replace him, which would be very appropriate. Oh, that's cool. He's the guy who won like a million something bucks, just constant like six month champ. Or some crazy number. Uh, Jeff Nichols is helming a spinoff to A Quiet Place, which will explore this universe more. Still haven't seen part two, so I don't know if I'm excited about that yet. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, this was odd. Dwayne Johnson has announced a reboot is being planned for The Scorpion King, which is going to be set in modern day. Uh I don't know. I don't know why. I think he's producing it, probably, you know, grooming some other young wrestler to be a movie star. Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be what it is. Just give him back. Modern day? Why? (laughs) Why would do that? That's going to fuck this all up. I don't know. Um, This was interesting. Robert Rodriguez has been working on a new new movie with Netflix called We Can Be Heroes. And it was recently discovered that it's actually a sequel to The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. So. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking we can be heroes like David Bowie, but no. Yep. It's basically more of that insane, crazy Nickelodeon bullshit. So get you, you know, buckle up. <laughs> Is Taylor Lautner gonna be in this one? No, but Lava Girl has already signed on. Well, if Shark Boy's not there, then I'm out. What honestly, what else does he got going on? <laughs> You know, you know what I, you know what I love, you know what the, the one of the best things ever of my lifetime of just growing up in the time that I've been alive is watching Robert Pattinson run fucking laps around Taylor Lautner. It's not even a contest at this point. The dude's fucking laps. He's Batman now. Like, there's my god. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's like in Pulp Fiction. You know, it's not in the same fucking league. It's not in the same fucking sport. You know, it's like, come on. 
come on we're not even come on it's ridiculous if they like greenlit you know another twilight movie Pattinson ain't showing up he doesn't need that anymore well but but the best thing that would be that if he did if he was like fuck it i'm gonna act the shit out of this character i'm gonna bring this movie to you know? oh my god he's insane he's insane i can't believe he's been a part of harry potter twilight and is now gonna be batman i just i can't believe it coupled with all of the little you know indie performances he's been doing behind the scenes oh. like for fan, you know for just like fans like us who well yeah everything. the stuff yeah the stuff we really really dig yeah i mean what he's doing in the king and the rover and good time like fucking hell this guy's incredible the lighthouse yeah hell yeah um speaking of well taylor lautner terrible uh we got gerard butler <laughs> is back in the uh he's doing a fourth has fallen movie uh, night has fallen because honestly, that's all he's got. If he's not fighting the fucking weather, he's fighting secret service agents or terrorists. So good luck, Gerard. Hope you pay off those student loans too. I I thought when I was a kid and saw Three Hundred, I thought he was going to be a good actor or something. We all did. <laughs> we all thought he had a promising career. Turns out, not really. <laughs> Oh man, he will not get his own Oscar Sunday show. <laughs> God, he's barely gonna get his own filmgasm. <laughs> Seriously, like what the three hundred, and then Die Hard in the White House, and then just like, nothing else but shitty rom coms. Uh, Law Abiding Citizen is okay. I haven't it's seen okay. it yet. I've heard it's the, dark and weird, but I'm I'm looking. For yeah, it. I I, I kind of dig that one, but pff, that's like one out of fucking thirty. Come on. <laughs> He's in, for fuck's sake, he's in, uh, isn't he in that movie, P.S. I Love You? Like, yes. yes you know, is. this guy, that's like, yeah, come on. That's like on his IMDb. He's the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Oh, uh, man. Um, Chris Pratt has been confirmed to be appearing in Thor Love and Thunder as Star-Lord. So they are going to be bringing the Guardians into that movie. Already Fantastic. shaping up to be an epic sequel to Ragnarok and Endgame. So can't wait. Uh, yeah, this- that'll be great. This was neat. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. Uh, John M. Chu has signed on to direct Disney's live action Lilo and Stitch movie. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm very, very, very excited, but I'm also very, very scared because <laughs> 2002 Lilo and Stitch is, is, is one of my favorite, you know, straight up Walt Disney animation studios yeah. movies. If I'm not counting Pixar, not counting the, you know, the random stuff like a goofy movie, which is like a whatever Disney tunes just straight up that shit that pops in theaters and makes a bunch of money. Lilo and Stitch is one of my all-time favorites. And it's very, very dear to my girlfriend's heart. My daughter seems to love it already and gets amped when it comes on. And my older brother and his girlfriend really, really love it. We kind of we kind of have a, there's a soft spot for all of us in my family with Lilo and Stitch. So we're very excited, but very scared because it's it you know when this happens it's it can potentially get a little bit messed up well disney's track record at this point is kind of half and half i mean yeah and and that really depends i think that's i think that's a a very big picture fair statement and then if you really ask you and i really i i'm probably more like 30 70 you know i like personally but i i'm with you they are half of them are pretty good movies well, what I've seen, I love their Beauty and the Beast. I love the Jungle Book. I thought Dumbo was okay. I thought Cinderella was pretty good. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did not like Maleficent. Mm, me neither. And uh, Mulan, I've heard pretty bad things about. I, the Lion King tragedy. I thought that was like horrible. I thought it was yeah. horrible. That was. Um, I thought Aladdin. Yikes! I did not like that. I, you know what? I kind of liked Aladdin, but I don't. know. Maybe it was nostalgia. <laughs> I have only seen it once. Maybe I do need to watch it again to really absorb it. I thought Jafar was god awful, but I thought Will Smith did a decent job. Yeah, see, that's that's the that's the thing, right? Is you want to be fair to Will, but I I'm I'm just I'm not. I can't. I can't mentally like fuck that. You can't. No, that character was played by somebody perfectly, perfectly. And this is nothing against Will Smith. I think the I think the guy is a genius. I think he figured out when he l- l- hear me out. I think when he <laughs> Connor looked at me like I was nuts. I think no, I don't. I don't think he's a great, great actor or anything. But I think he's a very, very smart guy. I think he figured out when he was young what's going to make him a lot of money and what he can pop in and you know be in almost every single year, every other year, and he's in America's conscience all the time, all the time. He times it out perfectly where he's in these movies that make a bunch of money and you know, and he just is on his merrily way. Fair and enough. I just, I, I just, and it totally makes sense that he would play the genie. He's this big, loud personality, and that's what Rob Williams was. But, but man, that I can't get over that one that easily. And Jafar was 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 very bad, which is one of my favorite villains of all of the Disney stuff. So that was frustrating. Uh, I I really like Aladdin. I just I, I did not find the remake or the live action one to be to have any of the charm that the uh, 1992 one had. You know what the thing is? That is something I've noticed with all of them. They're all forgettable, and I've only seen the ones I have seen. I've only seen once. I haven't wanted to go back. Whereas the original, the cartoons, I've seen many, many times and still love. So I don't know if what their Magic. issue is, but they've got a problem. Yeah, they lack. They lack the. Well, well, cartoons. We also love cartoons. We love animated stuff, and these things I see on the same level as anything else. You know, that I I can compare Rashomon and. And, you know, Beauty and the Beast, you know, I don't think that that's a crazy conversation to have. Some people would be like, that's silly. But I love animated movies and I think they have a lot to say, a lot to say. And when when you just treat them like a children's movie and then you're like, we need to make an adult one with live real people. You're taking that away. You're taking that magic away and you're fucking with it. And it's not the same. It's a manufactured, you know, repatched, redone CGI and it's just not it's not for me i much prefer the original the drawings the the stuff that that magic that got me as a kid and i still think gets to kids today i still think that the cartoons are what really connects with children and people that can take their mind back to the youthful place like you and i can um and that's why these remakes will never ever ever be as good and the lilo and stitch one that's what we that's how we got started on this there's just there's no way you can make a live action Lilo and Stitch that will be as clever, as funny, and as just emotionally, you know, <laughs> draining <laughs> and, and amazing as the 2002 one. There's no way. True. Very true. Well said, man. I think we yeah, I think we found the problem. <laughs> yeah, it's lacking magic. Yeah. And for my final update, uh, the Warner Brothers has already begun pursuing Johnny Depp's replacement for the role of Gellert Grindelwald in the Fantastic Beasts franchise. And the name 
that is currently leading in the running is Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah, that's cool. He's great, but I don't. This is this is silly to even yeah be going down this road. Um, I don't even. I, this one's this one's tiring because you see this is a huge star, right? Johnny Depp is a massive guy that everybody knows, and you see these kind of headlines and all this stuff and read these stories about him and this role being taken away from him. It, it quite frankly just pisses me off. Yeah, me too. Especially the circumstances of how it's going down, the amount of evidence he's oh, had. Yes, exactly. And nobody's taking him seriously because, frankly, because he's a man. Because male domestic violence is not taken seriously in this country. And this could have been an opportunity to take it seriously, but it's looking like Depp's going to lose fucking everything. And that's a disgrace. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's frustrating because... Uh... Yeah, like, you know, people don't want to see any situation as gray. It has to be one way or the other. You can't look at each... Yeah, you can't look at each scenario with some fucking light and some fucking perspective, you know. Um, And that's frustrating, you know. You and I certainly don't... aren't, aren't, you know, going to stand here and defend Johnny Depp every action he makes, but... But this is is too far. This is too fucking far. Uh, You're doing things to him that should happen to guys like Kevin Spacey. Um, you know, and like you said, we're not just blowing, you know, shit, you know, blowing steam. It's, it, it, there, there, there is actual proof here. You know, you can go online. This is a, this has been a long, long thing. If you don't know what we're talking about, I, I don't know where you've been. It's been around. Johnny Depp has been in the headlines for a long time. Yeah. Google Johnny Depp and it'll, you'll get there right away. But yeah, um, yeah he's got taped conversations of Amber Heard threatening him of, admitting lying about all this shit like what more does he need to prove that i mean he's got character witnesses up the ass like it's crazy he's got everyone backing him up he's got a track record of being a really like a nice person like this guy's not a wife beater i mean you know that's a very i don't know what else we can say well in that case you know we said our piece on that on the movie front Mads Mikkelsen's a neat choice, and it, I think he'll take the character in a cool way, cool direction. Uh, same, same. Love Mads. I think it is a great, great call. Just, just sucks the way it, the way some of that stuff happens. Sucks. It is like that now. There's going to be a dark cloud over the Fantastic Beast franchise as long as this keeps going because of how this happened. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Ugh. Sorry to end on a sour note there, but uh... <laughs> what are we doing next goes. week? Well, yeah, let's let's uh, let's change that note to something positive. Uh, let's talk a little bit about 1979, which is where we will be living for the next week. Connor and I are going to watch Kramer vs. Kramer, which won Best Picture. We're also going to watch Breaking Away, Norma Ray, All That Jazz, and Apocalypse Now. Those are the five nominees for Best Picture from that year, and we will watch them all. And Kramer vs. Kramer, because it won, will be the focus. So we'll give out awards for that film. But if you want to try to watch as many of those as you can and come join us next week, that's what we'll be doing. Uh, I have seen three of these, but I have not seen Norma Ray or Breaking Away. So I'm very excited to revisit three of them and uh, finally see the other two. I have only seen Apocalypse Now. And uh, for those of you who are uh, seeking to pursue along with us, uh, yes. Kramer versus Kramer is on Amazon Prime right now. But Beautiful. The, the rest are not. So good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're they're all pretty difficult to find. Uh, I think 
Apocalypse Now, you know, is the most accessible. Obviously, it's, you know, major, major work from 1979. A lot of people feel that it should have won the award. Uh, that's what we're going to try to figure out. We're going to try to watch all five and see what, see what we think. Where I stand right now, I, I don't know. Because those three movies are awesome, the ones I've seen. So I feel like I really need the other two to get the full perspective. So I'm, I'm very excited. Me too. I don't have anything to say yet because I've only seen one and I'm excited to go on this journey. This is going to be fun. Hell yeah. 1979. We love the 70s. It's going to be heaps of fun, mate. Hell yeah. And uh, this week on the Filmgasm podcast, we're, uh, Josh and I are going back to 1958 to talk the Vincent Price classic, The Fly. So tell you yeah. that. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a good week. And uh, we'll see you next Sunday. Yeah. Keep watching Kurosawa. Peace.